Welcome to Middle East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is episode 82 for January 7, 2022. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Institute. Two recent instances of democratic backsliding in Tunisia and Sudan illustrate the complex challenges facing U.S. policymakers in the Middle East as economic and social challenges create environments in which popular protest doesn't always side with elected governments against executive or military leaders who seize power. Lack of economic progress contaminates or discredits a larger democratic process. It certainly, it certainly discredits those who are in charge of economic and political portfolios. So you have this strange situation where the ones that are not in charge of that like the army, can get away with murder. They employed rent-seeking behavior by prioritizing partisan interests, so employing their allies and party members in in government positions in in different levels. And that led to a perception that political parties are there for for power, mainly, not for like uh, creating uh, institutions to, to transition to a democracy. If we can say in a word, democracy did not deliver. Those were the voices of Alberto Fernandez, Yasser Zaidan, and Shiraz Arbi. They spoke at a November 30 policy forum moderated by former Institute scholar Sarah Foyer. We'll hear their conversation on the challenges and options facing American policy in the face of democratic backsliding after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. I'm Sarah Foyer, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Washington Institute for Near East Policy's virtual forum Uh, policy forum this morning, uh, where we're going to be exploring uh, popular protest, some democratic prospects, and policy dilemmas for the Biden administration across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, We had a a few motivations for this event today. Uh, The first one is uh, the Biden administration's upcoming Summit for Democracy, uh, which will take place next month, early next month. Now, in that summit, the Middle East and North Africa will not uh, be uh, very uh, prominently represented. And it's sort of perhaps a telling um, moment about democratic prospects in the region uh, more generally. Um, And indeed, what we've seen in the last couple of months is uh, at least two Arab states, Tunisia and Sudan, which had been going through very different, although in some ways um, equally promising democratic transitions, undergo some real difficulties there uh, and some backsliding on that front. And so we wanted to sort of take a step back and assess the trajectories of these states. The other motivation, though, was an observation that notwithstanding the lack of perhaps a major democratic breakthroughs in the region uh, over the last uh, decade or so. What we have seen is uh, a kind of new normal set in of persistent, uh, even if at times low level protests across the region, because citizens continue to demand things like jobs, housing, uh, better governance, free expression, human rights, and so on. And so these two realities, um, I think, are are likely to be with us for some time. And uh, they raise a lot of questions and I think policy dilemmas for the U.S. administration, as well as for other Western countries who who are looking to build constructive ties uh, with countries in the region. So to help unpack some of these questions today, I'm joined by three uh, terrific speakers. We're going to hear from Shiraz Arbi. Shiraz is a Tunisian political analyst and a regional consultant for UN Women. For the last decade, Shiraz has been uh, providing technical assistance to Tunisia's uh, political parties, candidates, and parliamentary blocs. Um, She also worked for several years for the Tunis uh, Office of the National Democratic Institute. 
Welcome, Shiraz. Then I'm going to turn to Yasser Zaidan. Uh, Yasser is a part-time lecturer at National University in Sudan, and he's a doctoral student at the University of Washington, where his research has been focusing on political transitions in the Red Sea uh, region and Middle Eastern countries' involvement in the Horn of Africa uh, more generally. Great to have you with us, Yasser. And finally, I'm going to turn to Alberto Fernandez, uh, Vice President of the Middle East Media Research Institute. Previously, Alberto served as president of the Middle East Broadcasting Networks. He was also the U.S. Chargé d'Affaires in Sudan from 2007 to 2009. Um, and he uh, was the State Department's coordinator for strategic counterterrorism communications, among other uh, senior positions in, in Washington um, and throughout the Middle East and Africa. Okay, so um, Shiraz, I, I'd like to start with you and, and um, turn to the Tunisian story for a few moments. I think that some observers uh, of what has been going on in Tunisia these last few months have been a bit puzzled by um, the ostensibly high level of public support for um, what President Kais Saeed, uh, the steps that he took beginning in July uh, to essentially freeze parliament um, and uh, seemingly sort of take charge of most of the levers of political um, power in the country. Um, I mean, even the leading, some of the leading NGOs in Tunisia seemed sort of reluctant to um, condemn the move outright. Um, and so we've seen a kind of interesting evolution in um, the public stance on what Kai Said has been trying to do. So first, I want to ask you about this question of the public. Um, where is the Tunisian public today? Um, is there is there uh, uh, are, are we beginning to see mobilization in a different way that maybe we haven't seen in the last few months? Um, many of the polls, you know, for what they're worth, that have come out have suggested that the Tunisian public is quite divided on this. But I'm curious, you're on the ground there. How do you see the, the place of the Tunisian public today? Thank you, uh, Sarah, for having me. I'm happy to be with you in this uh, panel. So actually, in order to understand the reaction or the positions of the public, there are two defining moments. The first moment is July 25. And I think July 25 did not... Uh, come out of nothing because, um, of course, the, the Tunisia's transition in comparison to other Arab and Middle Eastern countries have made huge progress in terms of liberties, freedoms, uh, institutional reforms, public reforms. Yet, uh, the socioeconomic level and the socioeconomic uh, sector was missing. So, there is kind of um, the transition have also have only targeted uh, the the human rights and the political change, but did not touch anything related to the socio-economic, which are representing the, the essential needs of the revolution. And so, if we can say in the word, democracy did not deliver. So that's why the 25 July 25 decision to suspend the parliament was met, met with the, a huge welcome from, from the public, people independently of their political affiliation were happy to see the parliament because they see the parliament as uh, the face of democracy. And even though the parliament is not the sole responsible for socioeconomic reforms, for average Tunisians, the parliament as it is represented as it is uh, the first uh, democratically elected national body, it needs its, its responsibility is to uh, respond to citizens' needs and demands. Uh, the parliament have become in the last uh, four uh, years uh, a space for conflict, for especially that is aired live. And I think here uh, the decision to air the, all the, the, the discussion of the parliament live with all the conflict, the debates, etc., did not uh, participate in uh, creating a positive perception. And so people were, you know, you can go to with a taxi driver and say, I, enough with this parliament, the people there are not representative, the policies are not responding to Tunisian needs. So that was the first instance, the July 25, where people were really happy to see the parliament dissolve. 
But then there was another uh, instance, uh, decisive moment, which is the 22 September uh, decree, presidential decree, so the 117 decree. In this degree, uh, decree, so the president, he, he, he suspended the constitution. Uh, he just maintained the chapter on freedoms and liberties, and he suspended all the other uh, chapters of the constitution. And he, he said in this decree that there's, there's going to be reforms that will touch all parts of the, of the government and that there is no judicial review possible for any of these reforms. So here we enter into, into a, 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 a dictatorial based on exceptional measures and people were waiting for a timeline that will uh, define this exceptional period, but also were waiting for answers on his action plan to, to, uh, to face uh, or to respond to the socioeconomic needs. But again, he was still in the political reforms. He said that his plan is to, to, to change the, the political, to in, uh, enact political reforms that will change the, the regime from semi-presidential to presidential, that he will change even the way the, the, the representativity. So for him, representative democracy is not efficient and has failed, and we need to move to a direct democracy. Uh, people don't uh, don't know. We don't have an, a clear image here in Tunisia on what does it mean uh, the project of the president pertaining to direct democracy. Uh, he's still top uh, on the on the surveys, but from September 22, the second defining moment, there started to be a lot of interrogations and questions on to what degree uh, the president has in fact a project. To what degree this project can respond to Tunisia's real challenges, and to what degree what he's uh, putting through the decree is not uh, presenting alternative forms of of, of uh, dictatorship that are uh, covered in 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 in, uh, in, in citizens' uh, needs or in, in in direct democracy model that no one have a clear idea on what it is. And so the public has been, there has no, uh, there is no one public also, there is, uh, this is needs to be said. So there are protests, but also he's still top on the surveys. And if you talk to an average citizen, uh, you, most of the people are for no return to the democratic parliamentary or the, the, or the democratic, uh, the, 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 the parliamentary democracy in the previous parliament, but they are for also, they are not neither for the continuation of this exceptional measures. And every day that goes by, and this is what we say here in Tunisia, is going in the counter uh, direction that people hoped for on July 25. On July 25, people hoped for uh, a change that will really touch their daily lives. Uh, but again, uh, the president's speech is totally incoherent uh, or unmatching what the average citizen is hoping for. So this, uh, let's say, this connection between the president's project and people's needs is creating a confidence gap in his presidency. Uh, there is also the new, you know, people, with the arrival of the new government, they were hoping that this will be a, a new start that will change things. But again, the government is really uh, seems to be only on paper. It's the only spokesperson and the only decision maker is the president. So there is really a lot of questions about his, his intentions, his project, about also the future of Tunisia amid a crisis, a socioeconomic crisis, you know, in the 2022 national budget, uh, we have a lot of deficit and, and, and the president is disconnecting itself from himself from international, um, international relations, from international donors, from, and, and also he's disconnecting himself from, from political actors, from, 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 
all the, 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 let's say, the usual suspects in Tunisia that are here and that called the president to, to assist him or to, to, to work together. And this is one of the things that everyone is talking, two things, to have an action plan, but also that is participatory, to have a participatory approach, to have a transparency, to have a, a, a communication plan, but also uh, that he, as a president, he does not have the right to, uh, to, to, to make all these reforms on himself in isolation with civic and political actors. Um, so Shiraz, let me let me ask you. I mean, this is this is really interesting your your assessment here. First of all, just a, a, a minor comment, but you know the the what you mentioned earlier about this sort of unintended consequence of suddenly Tunisia had eyes on their legislature. This was something, of course, that was new. This had not happened before 2011. But in a way, what I hear you saying is that having that transparency facilitated in a sense because it it fed a lot of people's um discomfort disdain even for their elected parliament it actually ended up i think uh, in an unintended way um facilitating what what is by most accounts um a, a sort of anti-democratic um series of measures so that's just a sort of interesting paradox that i i wanted to pull out um but let me ask you before we turn to to the sudanese case and of course these cases are are quite different and um you know we're we're trying here today to use these cases in a sense to um get at some of the broader questions but i want to ask you one more thing about the tunisian um about the tunisian trajectory here i mean where do you see this going now? Um, I mean, it seems, at least from from the outside, that you know Tunisia is essentially settling into a kind of one man show here. I I don't know. But perhaps you could point to uh, for us to a few. You know, where are the checks on on his power at this point? And you know, all of the civil society actors in Tunisia, which for the last decade, you know, when 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 those of us who were trying to analyze the Tunisian story in the last 10 years, as you said, the political track, civil society, these were sort of bright spots because there seemed to be a real thriving um, civil society with uh, organizations, watchdogs and so on. Are they able to serve as a kind of check uh, at this point uh, against a more concentrated, um, uh, a greater concentration of power? Or are we basically going to see Tunisia sort of fall into the kind of familiar um, kind of one man or one party show that that, that we see um, in a number of states in the region? So uh, civil society actors and associations and uh, even the union, the, the, which is very active in society and has a huge influence, are trying and are being vocal. And I, as I said, since the second defining moment, seconds, since the 117 decree, are being vocal and are uh, expressing their frustration and their refusal uh, to, to, for, for the president to have this one-man show and that all reforms uh, needs to be discussed and needs to be inclusive and participatory. Um, and uh, in the media now, you know, uh, also the demonstrations and uh, in, in the streets are all different expressions of, of people um, that are influent NGOs, etc., that are really not accepting this, this process and this methodology. Now, to what degree they are inf influential, uh, let's say that before there were more spaces for influence. Now, uh, it's really between the, the president and the citizens and the intermediary uh, actors, uh, meaning political parties and civil society have a second role. And this is also due to the perceptions uh, when you, when the Tunisians have direct dialogue with the presidents, we as civil society also we are wondering to what degree we are influential. What was our weight during this ten years so that citizens don't feel the need uh, to communicate through us and are content with this direct dialogue? Political parties 
have contributed to this uh, lack of confidence uh, uh, that citizens have for political party because there are a lot of corruption, there are a lot of um, uh, there are a lot of uh, political figures that uh, are really um, have uh, cases, judiciary cases, and this has led to this uh, misconfidence between the political elite, let's say, and average citizens. And the president have this charisma to average citizens to connect with them directly and to say that the intermediary organs are not necessary and that I'm talking to citizens directly and there is no need uh, for any uh, uh, intermediary. And actually he's launching uh, uh, a national dialogue that he says it's with the people. I'm going to have a national dialogue with the people. And we have been asking, what does it mean, the people? And uh, political parties and civil societies are representative of the people. They are means of, of association of the people. But really, so far, uh, there is this disconnection, and we don't see any communication uh, from the president right. to really interact uh, with, uh, with the civic actors, political actors, even with the union, the union, the national union, trade union, that has been supporting the president, but at, are now really criticizing the approach and the process the president has taken. And so really going forward, we don't know exactly, we are waiting for the release on the reforms and we'll see to what degree we can influence and contribute to these reforms. Right. Thanks very much, uh, Shiraz. Uh, very interesting. And we'll come back to you uh, when we open it up for discussion. So Yasser Zaidan, I want to um, turn to uh, what's been happening in Sudan. Of course, a very different story there. I mean, for one thing, the, the transition in Sudan is much uh, newer. It's much fresher. This really, what we're looking at now only goes back to about 2019. Um, and usually the, 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 the crisis in, in Sudan is portrayed as as essentially a power struggle between the military um, and the civilian uh, leadership that this, of course, came out of this power sharing uh, agreement that was um, struck last year. Um, is that is that really the best framework to understand what's going on over there? Um, are we are we missing something else here? To answer your question, um, I will explore some unseen elements of Sudan's military takeover that happened on October 25th. First of all, uh, I, I, I argue against that dominant narrative of uh, uh, a contest between the military and the civilians. I think there is there is more uh, complex picture here. The first factor that I or the element that I would like to explore is the incompetence of the civilian side, and and I, I will explain this in in different points. The first is that um, the FFP, which is the Freedom um, Forces, the Freedom Forces for Change, led the protest, and it was a historical alliance that first time in Sudan's history to bring all of these political parties, and they, they led. They were successful in leading the protest, uh, and they they had a shared objective to remove uh, Bashir, but they've been very unsuccessful in 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 governing or in. Um, creating transitional or forming transitional institutions. For example, the, the transitional parliament that was supposed to be appointed mainly by the FFC uh, on January of 2020 uh, has been delayed continuously. Uh, two, two months before the military takeover, Prime Minister Hamdok uh, uh, called for the formation of the body uh, after continuous delay. And other also an institutional vacuum, uh, for example, the here the judiciary uh, institutions are are, are still uh, not uh, working. The, there is no constitutional uh, constitutional court in Sudan. Uh, the head of uh, the, the chief justice has been uh, removed, and the uh, the position has been vacant for a couple of months. And uh, also, in, in terms of like participatory um, participation, uh, the municipalities uh, rule has not been approved, uh, and that also led to some kind of um, uh, uh, parties 
dom domination of the scene. And, and that, that's one of the elements that I think has been uh, uh, overlooked. One of the uh, second element is also uh, the Juba Peace Agreement, which I think has exacerbated a tribal center divide uh, because of uh, the Juba Peace Agreement uh, uh, invited uh, rebel groups from Darfur and Southern Sudan. However, that peace agreement sidelined uh, a, a tribal faction in Eastern Sudan. And that led to a protest in Port Sudan, which is the main terminal port in Sudan. And also uh, portrayed the, 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 the central governance as a very kind of urban Govern, government rather than like a national government that includes all uh, kind of ruler institutions such as the tribal institutions. Uh, the, the, the final element I think is also the, the political parties themselves, they, up, they employed a rent seeking behavior by prioritizing uh, partisan interests so employing uh, their allies and party members in, govern, in government positions in, in different le levels. And that led to the, uh, a perception that political parties are there for, for power mainly, not for like uh, um, creating uh, institutions to, to, to transition to a democracy. Very interesting, thank you. Uh, you know, it's fascinating because th these are, as you said, these are, I think, elements of the story that we don't we don't hear as much about, um, uh, at least at least here in the West. I, I want to ask you now a similar question to what I asked Shiraz about the public um, in mm -hmm. Sudan. I mean, you know, it seemed that uh, I suppose in contrast to what we saw in in response to Kais Said's move in Tunisia. In Sudan, the public seemed to be broadly opposed to uh, the military's recent, whatever we want to call it, attempted coup, coup. Um, and so I wonder, you know, but on the other hand, what you just pointed to suggests that actually the civilian leadership may have also been um, giving folks a reason to, to be losing uh, faith in, in, in the civilian ability to govern. Um, and so I wonder today where, how do you assess the position of the public in, in Sudan? Um, and when it comes to their ability to be a real political uh, actor here, where are they today? Yes, this is a great question. And I think this is the bright side of what's happening in Sudan is that the public on the ground are very active. Uh, uh, many protests has been uh, has have been going in the last uh, uh, two weeks or like the last months. Uh, today was also like a big protest, in, and there was a big protest in Khartoum uh, that is happening right now. So the the public, in terms of the young people on the ground, they are very uh, 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 we're actively against the coup. But it's also I think they are they they are. Uh, lacking that organization that removed Bashir. Because I, I, as you said, they, they lost faith on the FFC, the political parties, and they are mainly uh, apolitical uh, uh, young, young, younger um, uh, activists. So um, uh, in my opinion, uh, this movement should, should go forward and uh, try to uh, create a, a wide, political umbrella, they should have a political kind of project that uh, include, that includes the FFC, but also other political actors, such as uh, the, the, the tribal actors in the, in the peripheries and in the rural areas. And, and because of the, the wider the coalition, the wider the civilian coalition, I think the better the, uh, the, the, to balance the military uh, power in Sudan's uh, uh, map. Political map. You know, one of the arguments uh, that have have been made in the last decade is when, when you look around the region, um, even if we can't really point to um, you know wildly successful uh, democratic transitions out of the the Arab Spring, there is an argument that something fundamentally did change uh, coming out of those events, and that is 
that the leaders today in the region, I think, are more aware, they're more conscious of, and the publics are as well, uh, they're conscious of the ability of, of publics to, to be a real pressure point um, on, on these uh, governments and on these regimes. So that even if reforms come gradually um, or not at all in some cases, there is there was a shift in the mind about the, the potential role of the public. I wonder in Sudan, from, from what you can tell anyway, does the you know does the the do the 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 governing authorities today on both the military and the civilian sides do you see that to be the case in Sudan that whatever happens they know that the public uh, can play a role or is the situation such that the public is not really much of a factor from from their point of view? Yes, I I I, I think the the the. Governing elements in Sudan now they understand very strongly that the public has has a role to play and uh, actually influencing uh, events in Sudan. So without that continuous protest after the October twenty fifth uh, uh, military takeover or military coup, I, I think uh, the political agreement between Hamdok, the prime minister, and the military would never have been possible. Uh, and 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 I think with the Hamdok's also initiative uh, to bring uh, uh, bring uh, or invite uh, elements of the resistance committee, uh, resist- neighborhoods resistance committee, to his office and to uh, uh, have a dialogue with them is 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 a, a proof that the the people in the street uh, they will have a role to play in 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 the coming days of Sudan's transition. Uh, especially with the election that is uh, expected to be in July 2023. Thanks very much, Yasser. Very interesting. Um, So I want to turn now to Alberto Fernandez and and try and uh, uh, broach the the subject of U.S. policy uh, having to do with all of this, because, of course, there are serious policy implications um, for Washington when we see, for example, protests erupt uh, in in countries such as the ones we've been discussing, but also more generally across the region. Um, And there are policy dilemmas, I think, for Washington when they see um, for example, some of the democratic backsliding that that we've seen in the last few months. Um, so my first question for you is, I mean, you 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 served in government, including in Khartoum, actually. But I, I actually want to ask you more about your time in in Washington. You know, can you speak a little bit about you know what what are some of the dilemmas that face? It's easy for us, sort of on the outside, to uh, criticize the U.S. government for either doing too much or too little. But can you just walk us through a little bit some of the dilemmas that policymakers really face when they see, for example, uh, new protests erupting, um, or uh, on the other hand, um, uh, an attempted uh, what we saw in Sudan, for example, uh, in, in the form of an, uh, an attempted coup. It seems. You know, in Washington, uh, when it comes to all these situations, uh, the policy process is complicated because. Uh, there's never for any country, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, and Tunisia and Sudan are significant countries, there's not a, a, a one agenda a policy. There are always other things on the table. I mean, to give you an example, when I was in Sudan, when I was in Khartoum, the main policy directive of the U.S. government at the time was the protection and the and the implementation of the CPA, the Comprehensive Peace Accords between uh, Bashir's party, the NCP, and Southerners of the SPLM. Everything else was secondary or tertiary. You know, was a kind of a priority list of things. Um, and so when you look at Sudan, when you look at Tunisia, you know, there's a policy process that goes on which. Uh, involves multiple factors, and there are, you know, bilateral issues and regional issues, and uh, uh, things related to what else is happening in the region. Think about it: the the U.S. diplomat Jeffrey Feldman, who negotiated or worked on the deal after the coup or before the coup and after the coup in Sudan, is also the point person for Ethiopia, 
where we have genocide and civil war occurring. So he has to kind of uh, try to put everything back together in Sudan. And he also had to deal with this, you know, much more bloody issue occurring next door. So what I mean is there are always trade-offs that have to happen. So it's very easy, and we see this constantly with the, with activists, uh, well-intentioned people, uh, you know, who say, you know, focus on us, look at our thing. You know, there are people dying on the street. Uh, and that's true, but whether that street is in Sudan or in Iraq, as we saw from 29, you know, for several years, the demonstrators being killed by government forces and militias in Iraq, Washington has other issues as well. It doesn't mean that they don't care about democratic processes or they don't care about people on the street, but there are lots of things that are being worked on. And this is especially, uh, I think, uh, salient and significant when you have, as you have in Sudan, and Yasser is right to mention it, you have a very legitimate process in the street of people rallying. You have hundreds of thousands of people in Sudan today, and and they're demanding, uh, you know, an end to this partnership of blood, that they're calling it, between the military and Hanbok. Uh, but actually, it's not clear what, they, there's no real leadership in a way. There's no real kind of agenda. It's a kind of a negative, we're against this thing, which is a bad thing, and we want it to stop, and we want it to be changed, but it's not clear what that leads to, absent a kind of a clear political framework. So you can have very well-intentioned people on the street in any of these Arab capitals, and it's all too often easy for Washington to write them off or to say, yeah, yeah, they're significant, but I need to talk to the people who are in power because I have these six different issues which are important for me to work on, whether counterterrorism or migration or regional peace, et cetera. Is it, is it the case, because one of the things that we have seen on, in, in a number of these um, protest movements across the region. Uh, so whether it was, I mean, in the most recent iteration, perhaps in Algeria, starting in 2019, we, we've seen it to some extent in Sudan, even in Tunisia more recently, and in places such as Lebanon, even Iraq to some extent, that the movements, the protest movements have often, first of all, they have remained largely leaderless. Um, and, and second, you know, there have at times there has been they've been at pains to really outline concrete uh, steps. Does that does that affect the uh, the ability of Washington to respond um, or, or or is that because what I hear you saying is that the, the absence of sort of clear plans may make it difficult for uh, the U.S. Uh, for U.S. policymakers to, to, to essentially know what, what address to, to, um, to, to glom onto. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, to a certain extent, exactly. So for example, the, the masses that bravely came out in Sudan after October 25th to challenge the military coup that happened, one of their demands was the return of, of Prime Minister Hamdok uh, back to his position, uh, which eventually happened. But the Americans, uh, the international community, were they talking to the masses in the street? Which masses would they be talking to? No, they were talking to Hamdok and to others uh, who have their own agenda, who have their own, uh, you know, uh, uh, worldview. And of course, what you have happened in Sudan, and this goes to your point of what's happening regionally, of course, is that there is people power, for example, in Sudan. But there is also an attempt by the regime, the military regime, and by the former regime, the Bashir regime, to play the people card as well. So, for example, Yasser mentioned the protest, protest in East Sudan that occurred, and he mentioned the Juba peace agreement uh, and the rebel groups there. He had a very interesting thing happen. Uh, some of the rebel groups who had negotiated a peace accord with Sudan, supported the military coup. They're part of the military coup process. And as for the demonstrators in East Sudan, they wanted a fall of the civilian government and they wanted a military government. So you actually had the, mil the military manipulating 
giving the appearance of they have their own people in the street. The numbers are much smaller, you know, compared to the, the people who want or against military rule is much bigger. Uh, but that goes to your, your thing about how regimes have to recognize that things have changed. Right. You know, the generals in Sudan, they launched the coup and they said they did it for the sake of the democratic transition and the elections and the revolution. So they clothed themselves in the language of revolution as they subverted that very same revolution. Right. So um, I want to ask you now about the, the U.S. Uh, response um, in, in, in both of these cases, and perhaps we can broaden it out a bit more, because the, the responses were interesting and they were they were quite different. I mean, when Kais Saeed took this step on July 25th, You know, I think initially the Biden administration um, sort of wanted to see where this was going um, and it eventually put out very clear statements that there there was uh, a, a hope and an expectation that the country would return to a, a democratic process, that parliament would be reinstated and so on. Or at the very least, that Saeed would appoint a new prime minister as he had uh, promised to do. Um, but generally speaking, I think the response to what has happened in Tunisia has arguably been a bit milder than what we saw in the Sudanese case, where very quickly there was discussion of hold on a second, all of the assistance that was going to be flowing to Sudan, now we're going to have to consider cutting all of this. Yeah. Um, so can you, I mean, when, when when I saw these sort of different responses, I, I immediately thought of the, the actually this issue of the public that we were talking about earlier, because yes. I imagine that it's not very easy for an American administration, if they see, even if it's uh, ostensibly uh, an instance of democratic backsliding, but if it's an if it's something that is seems to be supported by much of the public, how can Washington then come in and and start saying, well, we don't support this, or or we are we are deeply concerned about this when half at least half the Tunisian population seems to be behind it, whereas in the Sudanese case, it seemed anyway that there was a clearer. Opposition. There was a groundswell of opposition to Burhan's move to, to to take over, and so perhaps it made it a bit easier for Washington to then, you know, go forward with what it would have wanted to say anyway. How do you assess that? Well, of course, first of all, the temptation for any American administration is to deal with the status quo. There's a kind of temptation. There's a kind of leaning towards accepting things as they are. Uh, look what we saw Brett McGurk, the administration's point man, say only a few days ago about how the U.S. needs to get back to basics and against regime change. I mean, some interpret that within the context of Iran, but others are saying what well, basically what it means is the Americans are, uh, as a result of kind of a policy of disengagement or distancing themselves from events on the region, are going to kind of deal with things as they are. So if generals are in charge, they're going to deal with it. If some other person is in charge, they're going to deal with it. The big difference between the two cases that you mentioned is Sudan was in a transition or is in a transition. Uh, but Case Saeed was democratically elected. He was right. democratically elected with 72% of the vote. So the fact that he's now behaving in an authoritarian manner, you could say he falls into that category of popular or democratically uh, uh, credentialed authoritarians. That gives them a certain amount of clout and a certain amount of credibility in Washington that even if people don't like it, they're going to accept. Meanwhile, in Sudan, you have generals who, by the way, are products of the Bashir regime, a a 30-year Islamist dictatorship, And one of the first things they do after overthrowing the government is release Bashir regime people from prison, only to realize they have to imprison them and put them back because it's embarrassing. So so it's very very easy for Washington to say, Tunisia, the president, we don't like what he did, but he's a democratically elected president. Uh, How are we going to deal with this? Whereas in Sudan, you say, 
These are Bashir regime thugs bringing back a kind of NCP light regime and clothing it in the language of revolution. So it's very easy to kind of make those, uh, you know, kind of snap judgments. Uh, there's a certain yeah. logic behind them. Okay. One one last question for you in this round, from me anyway, and that has to do with the 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 general ability of the United States to, to really have an impact on the direction of transitions such as the ones that we've seen in, in Sudan and Tunisia. I mean, you know, this, what happened in Sudan, I think it was the day after Jeff Feltman was in the country. I mean, yeah. and, and, and that the military did yeah. this, it, it didn't speak very well uh, to um, there was a statement in there, it seemed, about the the uh, the ability of Washington to even influence. And yet, when when developments unfolded, it did seem that the country was responsive ultimately to the pressures that the U.S. and others, I think, um, you know, brought to bear. Um, so, you know, more generally today, how do you assess? Washington's ability to even have much influence on uh, on these countries, and and where would you you know looking forward now, we know that the Biden administration has prioritized um, the the matter of human rights, um, democracy perhaps less so, but still there is going to be this democracy summit next month. I think to try and bring some attention to the to the matter. So moving forward, I mean, would you have suggestions for the administration in um, in its approach more generally to the region on these issues? Oh, has the administration prioritized human rights or has it said that it prioritized human rights? I would I would say that it said that it prioritized human rights. And as for democracy being at the center of its um, uh, of, of American policy, it's more like center of a donut. Uh, more than anything else, there's a there's a golden opportunity coming up with the Democracy Summit. There's some talk in Washington that with the Democracy Summit, which is a kind of carrot in a way, that there's going to be a kind of a stick. That there's going to be additional Magnitsky uh, sanctioning of individuals uh, worldwide, perhaps who are problematic, and so the U.S. has a lot of tools. Uh, but but the challenge always is that you can have tools in in the in the hypothetical, uh, but how much how far are you really going to go? Especially if what you want is uh, status quo stability, as what it seems that this is what the Biden administration wants. They want to pivot to climate change, pivot to China. Uh, the Middle East, the region is too problematic. So they kind of would like to wash their hands and move on. Well, people in the region read the American media. So they know about this hesitancy in Washington. They know about this kind of, uh, you know, kind of sense of uh, uh, disengagement, whether it's not actually on the ground. They know that that, 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 that Washington has changed. You know, I mean, when I was in Sudan, there were people in the administration talking about going to war over Darfur. Huh. It never happened. I didn't even get into the planning stage, but there were people who actually thought of things like this. It's inconceivable that something like that would happen today. Thank God, I wouldn't say, you know, we're, we've had enough experience in, in war. So the so people in the region, regimes in the region, realize they pick up on it. Their, their sense is America is tired. America is overextended. America is distracted. That leads them to make certain decisions, to take certain decisions. And I think the fact that they launched the coup the day after Jeffrey Feltman was there is evidence that they thought that eh, they were going to pay a price, but maybe it was a price that they could uh, they could support. We're starting to get questions coming in, but I, I, I want to ask Shiraz and, and Yasser to just weigh in on this last point that Alberto made concerning the perceptions of, of the U.S. in the region. Um, in other words, the perception on the part of people in the region today, you know, what do they see as uh, the potential role for uh, the United States? I mean, here in these two cases that we've been discussing today, 
you know, these are, I mean, Tunisia has received a tremendous amount of support from the U.S. government in the last decade. Um, and I think in the Sudanese case as well, you know, once 2019 happened and, and, and Washington saw what was starting to unfold, I think Sudan has really been seen as a potential opportunity here. Um, and there are other countries in the region as well where the U.S. has, you know, has identified friendly governments or at least governments that it 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 would like to develop a friendlier relations with. Um, but from the standpoint of people in the region today, I mean, how do you see uh, the role of the United States? Um, do, do, does Washington have uh, a say in any of this or should they just not even touch this with a with a 10 foot pole, as we say? Shiraz, why don't you start and then we'll uh, I'll ask Yasser to, to weigh in. I think from the Tunisian perspective that uh, U.S. support uh, is important, but also uh, how it is perceived, it, it is perceived that it should also be aligned with what the citizens and what the Tunisians want. Uh, mm -hmm. And what the Tunisians want uh, is not less democratic or less democratizations, but more democratization that really hasn't they can see the impact of democratization on their daily lives, on changes. Uh, and, and I think that's what is the perception that the U.S. and international partners in general, but the U.S. in particular, should continue the support, but should also be developed and also not uh, to react solely to... to to decisions or to, I mean, it was seen, I think, positively that uh, after the 25th of July, uh, the U.S. did not qualify Qais uh, Haid's decision as a coup. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think it was appreciated because it is true that Tunisia has made a lot of achievements, but it is also seen right now as a moment to uh, to correct the, the the democratic trajectory. It's not to remove it. It's not to move back to dictatorship. I think that this generation of Tunisians are are, uh, are not willing to 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 let to let or to uh, to uh, or to um, to remove or any democratic uh, achievements, liberty of uh, freedom, liberty of association, uh, etc., freedom of press. These are achievements that should not be removed. And I think, but I think moving more to the fact that democracy should deliver socioeconomically, this is, I think, the thing that did not, that failed to be done over the 10 past years. And let me tell you something about this, that, in 2018, there is a huge weighted piece of legislation, which is the decentralization law, uh, that through it, uh, Tunisians expected that in moving to a decentralized fo form of government, uh, there's going to be a, a, a real local development and a real local and regional um, uh, share of, of wealth. This did not happen after... Uh, three years, the municipal councils became uh, a space for political disputes and debates. And again, they, they created another layer of frustration. So, so just to, 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 to give the, the, the perspective why Tunisians were not were happy with this move, because they were kind of, everyone in Tunisia were kind of waiting for a moment of of, of disconnection uh, with what happened and uh, a renewal, but without, without moving from the democratic ideals. Uh, so just to finish what Tunisians are waiting that there is an understanding at the international level, but also at the national level, as you said, Tunisia, like the civil society and the, the NGOs, and they, they are safeguards and they are watchdog that continue to do their role and they will be very, very, uh, they are doing their monitoring and the, there is no way uh, that any uh, violation of human rights or any attentive of authoritarian authoritarian move that will be tolerated uh, on the on the let's say on the long term. So here everyone is vigilant and waiting to see Kaiser's uh, reforms that they so that they can uh, comment it and that they can really 
participate in the elaboration of what's the future of Tunisia in terms of the big reforms at the national and local level. Great. Thank you, Shiraz. Yasser, do you have uh, a view on this question about U.S. Uh, influence or um, what it should be or could be? Yes, uh, I, 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 I think the U.S. response to the military takeover uh, in Sudan was unique, and I think it was successful. Uh, the, the, this time, it was very um, uh, interesting that the U.S. coordinated its response with regional countries such as Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, and Egypt, and vis-a-vis and -vis Sudan's issue. And that, I think, uh, also solidified the U.S. pressure uh, onto the military. But also, it's very uh, pragmatic of the U.S. also to think that um, the military has a role in Sudan's transition. And I think that was, that, that's, that's a very um, fact that was clear when the protest happened in 2019, is that you need elements of the previous regime, of the previous regime security to side with the protest, because you wanna keep that kind of like structure of the state. You don't wanna uh, uh, go on a track of civil war especially that now rebel groups, as Alberto mentioned, are more aligned, are more al uh, allied with the military. Uh, so I think the US uh, pragmatic and multilateral response uh, was really successful in restoring Hamdok's back in, in the prime minister office. Uh, and I think it could play a more uh, a destructive uh, and positive role in the future by helping uh, the uh, the formation of transitional uh, institutions, the constitutional committee, the elections committee, um, uh, uh, in in the future, the the people's perception of the U.S. has always been that, uh, even on the eve of the military takeover, that the U.S. should intervene, the U.S. should put sanctions, and I think they the 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 power of social media have actually also uh, played a role in that. And we've seen many uh, policymakers from the US administration being very vocal about the need to, to, uh, uh, to end the current kind of uh, military takeover. Um, there was some kind of disappointment when the Troika or the US, UK and Norway and the EU actually supported the political agreement between Hamdok and the military. But as, as Alberto mentioned, you, the policy making is not as, as, uh, as, as simple. It has many complex elements of it. And uh, with more engagement of, between the US and, and Sudan's uh, people, especially like uh, training programs and democratization programs, I think that could really help the way forward on Sudan's transition. Great, thank you. So in the in the final uh, remaining minutes here, I, I want to just um, relay a question that came in from our audience, and it has to do with the um, the relationship between political uh, progress and economic uh, growth. Um, the question that came in had had more to do specifically with the Tunisian case, where for 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 many years, I think, you know, those of us who were watching Tunisia tended to say, well, the, you know, the political track seems to be going pretty well. The economy is another question. And, and, and we have to be we have to look out for this because people are going to start potentially associating uh, democratic institutions with poor economic uh, performance and poor governance. And to some extent, I think that has, is probably what has happened in, in Tunisia. But more generally in the region, um, you know, we I think that we are seeing now, and if you add to add to what has happened, uh, the COVID pandemic and the economic hardships that the that the pandemic has wrought uh, across the region, you know, should we be more focused today on uh, questions of governance, of economic um, uh, economic opportunity, and what does that, or, or should we continue to be pushing, for example, for things like free and fair elections, um, you know, political institutions? We can probably do both, but there does seem to be uh, an, a, an, a growing argument that we have not put enough attention on the economic side of things. And so while 
of course, democracy and 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 um, political liberalization are what we would like very much to see happen. Um, that maybe there needs to be more attention on the economic side. I'd like to get each of your um, uh, your takes on this and um, and use it as an opportunity if you have any concluding uh, remarks so we can um, wrap up in, in the next few minutes. So why don't we go um, in reverse order. Um, I'll ask Alberto if you'd like to start us off. Yeah, look, I think the economic dimension is 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 essential. Uh, and, and and this is a situation where there is there is an overlap between these two very two very different cases in both Sudan and in Tunisia. As far as I understand, you have uh, uh, very high expectations, or you had very high expectations by the people, by the masses, that there would be a tangible improvement in their lives, and it hasn't happened. There's been real progress in kind of macro level type things. Like Sudan, you know, coming to agreements with the World Bank and the IMF. But on the local level, on looking at the price of stuff, on your on the job, joblessness, unemployment, all of those things, those things all lag. So what does that do? That lack of economic progress contaminates or discredits a larger democratic process. It certainly it certainly discredits those who are in charge of economic and political portfolios. So you have this strange situation where the ones that are not in charge of that, like the army, can get away with murder because people are going to look at the actions of prime ministers or economic officials or whatever like that. So this is the dilemma. They are absolutely tied together. Okay, Yasser? I I think the, the economic situation in Sudan uh, was also really in a very severe kind of like projection. Uh, the IMF uh, austerity measures has, uh, although it has a good uh, outcomes in the in the near future by like uh, removing subsidies on uh, um, uh, gas and and the, and the subsidies of in, on hard currency, but it has also um, uh, affected the 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 people in, in the, the average people in Sudan uh, by pri- uh, uh, rising prices and uh, other uh, um, lack of uh, services. However, I think with with if if we, if there was the political institutions up and running are effective in in solidifying civilian governments and also applying rule of law accountability. And the people could could actually see that it, this democratization is 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 working for them. I think that would 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 lead to uh, to move be, beyond the neck of the bottle. Um, one of the things that I, I I would like to conclude with is that uh, I think the 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 ball is in the uh, uh, field of the people, and I think with Hamdok's back in office. Uh, a wider civilian uh, uh, compromise and a bargain that could actually solidify those uh, political institutions, uh, and which could uh, uh, result in an elected uh, uh, government and elected uh, uh, parliament would be a better outcome of the current uh, uh, crisis. Terrific. Thank you. And Shiraz, final uh, remarks. Yes, thank you. So actually in Tunisia over the 10 years, there has been constant calls uh, for uh, an economic uh, transition that should accompany the political transition. And there has been also calls uh, that, uh, and and, uh, a lot of experts and people in civil society have been saying that if we don't succeed in economic transition, it will challenge the political transition and it will impact the political transition. But it was not done uh, for many reasons, but many some points that we have, we've uh, had more than 10 governments. So there has been a lot of instability on the government level in order to formulate strategy and lasting strategy. And every government that comes starts from, from scratch. 
The second thing is that the bad management of the loans. There has been a lot of support and 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 also uh, loans that were used for management and not for development. Uh, and also the fact that uh, there has been a, a, a lot of uh, infl- the, the inflation uh, has gone very uh, up and also the shrinking of the middle class. And so you can see the impact of this failed economic transition on the lives of people. And so that's why I think we cannot, we, we cannot separate the political and the economic uh, achievements. They are both uh, barometers to, to see to the extent that through which we can evaluate the success of any uh, transition. So these are my, my final words that they should go hand in hand. Uh, but uh, in the case of Tunisia, it was not, and this is what we see today, is the, the consequences, the logical consequences of neglecting the economic um, field and the economic needed reforms. Right. Well, I want to thank um, thank all of you for, for being here with us today. Um, just a, a, a plug, we at the Washington Institute um, have been exploring some of the issues that came out of this discussion today. Um, so we have a, a series of papers that um, we, we started putting out a few months ago, looking at these questions of popular protest and um, democratic prospects and trying to help the Biden administration um, in, in its approach to some of these issues across the region. So our viewers, if they're interested, can, can look at the website washingtoninstitute.org for that. Um, but here I just want to say thank you very much to Shiraz Arbi and Yasser Zaidan and Alberto Fernandez. I think this has been a terrific discussion. Um, and thank you all for, for taking the time and for your fantastic insights today. This has been Middle East PolicyCast, production assistance this week from Corey Francis. For more information and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org, follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute, and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Cast.